Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 77, a new future for U.S. soccer. Yeah, it was a big night for this uh, this country's football federation, for the two teams, the men and the women. I watched the, the Gold Cup final last night and followed it up with a little bit of a nap, three, four hours, uh, to then wake up at 2 a.m. to watch the U.S. women play against Canada in their Olympic semifinal. In the end, what a huge night it was for U.S. soccer. It went both ways, jubilation and unlikely glory for the men versus failed expectations and just deep disappointment on the side of the women. For once, the men were the former of those categories, they, the, and the women were the latter. And for over the last 25 years, we've witnessed the U.S. women's national team be the dominant force. And yes, they, there have been times where they haven't been the team that won the World Cup, or they maybe haven't been top, top, top of the pile, but it's always felt as if that was just a blip, and they'll be right back. And with the men, it's always felt like when something good happens, when there's a good tournament, a good showing, that this, hey, maybe it's a turning point. Maybe we're getting better. But then immediately after, you know, you don't qualify for the World Cup. You you don't qualify for the Olympics. You, you know, get knocked out of the Gold Cup, you know, in an embarrassing fashion and in a different tournament. So a lot of things have happened over the years, but the landscape is changing. It's evolving. And I think that what we saw last night was the beginning, I'd say, really the, the touch paper being lit for things taking a completely different direction. Do I think this means the U.S. women's team is going to be, you know, not what they always have been? I'm not so sure. And we'll get into that. But I do think on the men's side, this was pretty huge. So I know it all sounds a bit ominous, but let me make my point by breaking down the trajectory that I've seen these teams on and where the programs really are going. What I just want to do is see if I can read the tea leaves or the coffee grounds, if you will, and have a little bit of an understanding for which narratives are going to teach us or give us some insight into what's coming. All right. So first, I just want to say massive congratulations to Craig Burhalter because I've been unconvinced by him as a coach. He's kind of felt like a Gareth Southgate type, right? Like calm, collected, pretty good with the media, you know, Seems like a nice guy, definitely taking the program in a more youthful direction, but you're kind of wondering who the major stars are of this, like, what's what's we really trying to do? He caps all these young players, but who's actually going to be a major part of the team? It was also nice to see him show, I think, a little bit more personality and passion and, and just competitiveness, uh, notably when he screamed in the fourth official's face right after they, uh, right after Jazzy Sardes scored the winner against uh, Qatar in the semifinal. I'm going to say, I don't like that at all. I, I, I was not, uh, I don't really support that as an action to go and scream in the face of a fourth official because you disagree with a penalty call that had been made earlier or something. I don't, I, that, that was ridiculous. I'm glad he apologized for it. But more than anything, what it was nice to see was he's taken a very diplomatic approach to things so far. And it, and, I thought it was intriguing to see the real competitor in him emerge. And I think, you know, coaches have this ability to show a certain side of themselves in certain moments, and it sends a message to the players. And I think the players, when they get that win against Qatar in the semifinal, I think they see he is so fired up that for them it's like, yeah, man, like in everyone's face, we have this team that should not be competing in this tournament at the final based on the squad and 
and you know the, the lack of depth it has, the lack of experience it has, but we're here, we're going for it. And so I, I think that that really rubbed off and they were able to win this final and win this gold cup. Uh, Miles Robinson, got to give him a shout out for his header goal to win it uh, from a lovely Kellen Acosta free kick delivery. Shout out to Rapids, uh, Kellen Acosta. But look, there's a, a set of themes here going on. Miles Robinson played every single minute of this tournament. He scored against Martinique, scored in the finals, and he's got two goals in his very short stint as an international footballer. And he's not the only one who was in this squad as a brand new player. I mean, the reality of this squad is that it was so inexperienced, but they had so little to lose. And in the end, uh, they're champions against a Mexico team that had far more resources than they did. Uh, for context, nine of Mexico's rostered players had at least 45 appearances. Okay, the U.S. had 13 with 10 or fewer. All right, Matt Turner was the least capped of the three goalkeepers who they took there. He only had one before the tournament started, and he starred all tournament. And he was absolutely brilliant, making huge saves in the semifinals. And just great account of himself. A goalkeeper who, you know, everyone was saying, Zach Steffen, Zach Steffen. Then you got Brad Guzan sitting on the bench. He doesn't get a minute in the tournament. He's the, the most capped American goalkeeper currently playing. And so now you look, well, Zach Steffen, somewhat injury prone sometimes, never plays for Man City. Matt Turner's starting to look like a great option for your number one. And and what what a way to insert yourself into the conversation for him. And I think that's just brilliant. I think also, look, in the back, they lose Walker Zimmerman in the first half of their final group game against Canada. Uh, he's got 17 caps. They've got Reggie Cannon with 21 as basically the old head of this back line. But once Zimmerman goes, they had to put Donovan Pines in, and he was uncapped and played for the rest of the tournament and did exceptionally well. Four out of the eight defenders that they brought to the tournament had zero caps a month ago two of the six midfielders and two of the six forwards as well so then you keep in mind that all the big names were not here and some of those more experienced guys that were in the squad they're not even assured spots once at once the whole pool is ready you know Sebastian Legette's a very good player uh Christian Roldan's a very good player but are they going to be in the squad when Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney and all the rest of these guys Reggie Cannon or, um, you know, when, when all these guys come back, what, you know, and, and they come into the fold, what's this team going to look like? Are some of these veterans like Kellen Acosta that were in the squad here going to be on a 23-man roster to Qatar, right? Or is someone like Donovan Pines going to be there? It's going to be very, very interesting to see. And, I mean, look, you have to say they grinded out the results. They, they grinded it out the whole way. I mean, they barely scored any goals. They scored six against Martinique, but they won 1-0 against Haiti. They won 1-0 against Canada. They won 1-0 against Qatar. They won 1-0 against Mexico. And in, in, in the end, I mean, it, it's, it, it's an impressive way for a really young group of players to win, to survive games, to win late, to go through lots of adversity along the way, you know, giving up penalties that need to be saved missing chances at, at key moments and then disappearing, right? Players who maybe we expected more from, like, Daryl DK. We thought maybe he'd take over. And in the end, there wasn't really a number nine to really hang your hat on. Giazzi Zardes came up with his big moment in the semifinal, but this was a massive team effort. 
And the reality is this was a C team, okay? It, this is absolutely not even your regular Gold Cup roster that you would have in a year of Olympics. This is if the team even qualified for the Olympics. So this is why Greg Berhalter, it's just – he 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 did something. He made a huge trick here because what he did was he enormously grew his player pool. So now when he's looking at who he can count on, he's got a whole line of players, some of which were totally uncapped before this tournament, who he knows he can rely on in big moments because they just delivered a big moment. I know it's the Gold Cup, and you may be thinking, well, that's not the World Cup. That's not the same. That's not a final crunch match in World Cup qualifying. But for these guys who had never been in this situation before, not at international or even club level, this was a huge, huge developmental growth step for the program. What it does for the confidence of these players is immeasurable, and hopefully it carries into their club form, and we start to see some of these players either really start to excel at their MLS clubs or those who either are abroad or in the MLS and could get a look to go abroad really start to improve. it was interesting too. I think I want to, I want to give Burhalter credit as well for the way he managed his squad. There was something very reminiscent of Italy at the Euros. For instance, Greg Burhalter he starts George Bello and Eric Williamson for the final against Mexico. They had played two and three games respectively for the national team ever. Right? They were uncapped for the tournament. Played two games in the tournament, three games in the tournament. Start the final. Right, not what you have expected. I mean, every single one of these projected 11s did not have them in it, and he goes and starts them. Right, and and for a final, I mean, that shows enormous amounts of faith in your whole squad, and players pick up on that. And once they feel that sort of faith from the coach, that belief, they repay that in spades. And I, I think Mancini did very, very similar things. Right, I remember he brought off Gianluigi Donnarumma. Uh, in garbage time of their game against Wales to just go ahead and uh, and give, uh, I believe it was Sirigu, an opportunity. And, you know, the, there were so many squad rotations that Mancini did in the Euros, right? It was like Manuel Locatelli scores a double in one game, doesn't start the next one, right? And, and I mean, y- you had a feeling like you didn't know it was coming, but that all the players were fine with it. They just wanted the team to advance and for everyone to be a real part of the experience. And when you have that and you have everyone pulling in the same direction, it, you you do have a winning formula. And he may just, Greg Berhalter may just be succeeding at something that I've considered one of the biggest problems for the U.S. in a long time is that culture and identity and mentality of the program to be what it actually is and not some self-aggrandized picture of what it would like to be. In 2017, you have to think about when the U.S. bowed out and failed World Cup qualification, there was this doom and gloom idea that we have been doing everything wrong, that that our development's all wrong, that the way we're producing players is all wrong. But the reality is we've been maybe doing things right. It was just that those were the fruits of what had been a decade worth of stale development, not maybe prioritizing the right things on the international stage, not trying to make sure that you get players exported. We started bringing players back from Europe to to the MLS. And I, I remember thinking, this is not the best way to, to make this team go farther. I remember Clint Dempsey and Josie Altador coming back from Europe and you were like, guys, stay there. That's where you're gonna that's where you're gonna really 
you know, help take this program to a higher level. And I just felt that the U.S. had gotten these illusions of grandeur that they didn't deserve. And the fan base was pretty much roped into this fantasy of expecting something that was not going to happen. And what we used to have as an American team that made people proud was just a humble, hardworking, ultra-competitive unit that didn't lay down. That was what made the 2002 side so appealing to people and the the sides in the 90s. Even though they weren't good, talent-wise, they still just gave it everything. And then once we started thinking we were much more talented, we're catching up to Mexico consistently, we have a couple good games even in just the World Cup, all of a sudden people started thinking, well, we're now maybe contenders. And I think that it goes to show a lot that the U.S. wins a gold cup with a C team against full-strength teams from other, from other nations. And they do it totally a different way than what I think a lot of people expect the U.S. to play like now. I don't think that when you get all the starters back, you're going to see this style of play. Obviously not. You're going to have players that can hold the ball better and take the game to the opposition. But this is the DNA that has to be at the core of this U.S. men's national team. Yes, you're going to have your special players and your ballers. But you need the rest of the crew to be solid, hardcore gamers who know how to perform, compete, and always be there and always be reliable. And then once you have a large player pool and a coach that knows how to pick on who, anything is possible. So really, really good, I think, for the United States, this whole thing. And I want to close off talking about the U.S. men with, Something that Mark Dillon from The Talent Project said. So The Talent Project, for those of you who do not know, is a sort of academy structure in Germany. They play in Bavaria and play against different Bundesliga academies. It's for Americans to go and basically do a study abroad year in Germany to be able to get training and playing at the absolute highest level they can at crucial ages like 13, 14, 15, 16. And it's all about diplomacy right it's hard to get work permits you can't get a trial at arsenal as an american kid and just go there unless you have english parents or european parents so mark Dillon creates a talent project sets this up and he and i had a discussion a little while back i forget exactly which episode that is if you're interested check it out please it was really inspiring one of the things he said was that the 2007s to 2010s that age range right there he predicts that that class will be so stacked and possibly a force in world football, just based on the level of talent he's seeing at the average levels and then as you see it go up. He said that the level of Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, Weston McKinney, these guys are the unique stars that we have right now. But what he was saying is over the coming decade, over the coming 10 years, through that period of time, we're going to see 10, 20 of those kids rise up. The question is, who's going to then have the ability to, at the professionalism, the ability to stay at the top, be at the top, be a leader. But the talent pool is coming. And if this is the identity that they can have, I think it could be a really good 10 years for the U.S. And it could be an amazing World Cup hosting in 2026. All right. Spent longer than I wanted to on that. But we have to talk about the U.S. women. Obviously, second match of the night for the United States Woke up at 2 a.m. for this one, and wow, what a different crossroads this this team is at. They crash out of a tournament that they were clear, clear favorites to win. And keep in mind, this is an easy tournament compared to the World Cup. Um, yes, this is the second most difficult tournament the U.S. women play, but I would, I would argue the Euros are more of a difficult tournament to win than this because 
at least there you got all the European powerhouses in it. You're missing Brazil, the United States, Canada, Japan. That's kind of it. The European teams, there are a lot of them. There are a, there are a lot of very, very strong ones. And <clears throat> without France, without Germany, without Denmark, without Norway, without Spain, I mean, these are that, that, that's five huge teams that would have surely made a difference in this tournament, right? Because there were only three groups, third, two third-place teams went through. So it was too easy to advance. And it, I, I think it just – the United States getting to the semifinal says absolutely nothing about how they actually played. Them getting knocked out, <laughs> that's where we can really start. But, look, they, they were never at it, not from the beginning. They were spanked in the first game by Sweden – reacted to it well I guess against New Zealand beating them 6-1 but this is a depleted New Zealand side that had not even had game time together before this tournament started so it was almost like a moot point and probably the worst game for them to have actually played second a lot of people said this is the good one because it gets their confidence rolling again it was false confidence they played a team that gave up two own goals that were just really unlucky uh and they they weren't gonna they didn't learn from their lessons they were offside I don't know how many times in that game and kept being offside throughout the tournament a lot of times. And it was something that really, really, I would imagine frustrated Vlatko a lot because that's just discipline from the players. But all they could take from that New Zealand game was, well, we padded our goal difference and we got three points. That's it. Other than that, I, I get the feeling they all felt, okay, now, now we're rolling again, but you weren't because it was not even a really fair contest in a way. And in the end, what does it mean? Well, look, they, they had no rhythm for long, sustained periods of possession. And they just struggled to control games. It was one, it's one thing to have a little bit more of the ball or to get a few more chances on target than the opposition, spend more time in their half than yours. But none of that really equates to much if you don't really make the other teams suffer. And it felt like the U.S. suffered more than any of the other teams. Here's a reason. They only scored two goals, only two, outside of their game against New Zealand. And that was against the Dutch, obviously. They drew a blank against Sweden in the first game, drew a blank against Australia in the third game, and obviously lost 1-0 to Canada in their fifth game. They only had one clean sheet the whole tournament, didn't even get a clean sheet in that game against New Zealand, and the clean sheet was a draw, 0-0 against Australia. As I said, they gave up huge chances in every game. Every single game, there was something where they needed a desperate block or an Alyssa Nair save who, by the way, looks to have really hurt herself. I really hope she's okay. That injury just looked, it just looked like it hurt a lot. But without her penalty heroics in the quarterfinal, they would already have been out, and we wouldn't have had to talk about this Canada game. Now, Canada, they were okay. They offered nothing going forward, like nothing. And, I mean, it was a little bit, it was a boring game to watch. But the thing is, they didn't need to because the U.S., they just looked so disjointed and, they just never looked like scoring. Now, though I disagree with the penalty kick, I don't think the res- I don't disagree with the result, right? To me, it just looked like, yeah, this is probably how it's going to pan out for them. Now, if the penalty, just want to touch on this real quick because I don't think it requires too much time. Yes, I don't think it was the right call. Yes, if it hadn't been called, the U.S. might have found a way to win in extra time or in penalties. But... I want to talk more about the decision itself specifically. It looked a lot like the same thing that happened between Vancouver and Minnesota on Saturday in the MLS. Go check that out. Vancouver versus Minnesota. Check out the penalty at the very, very end of that match 
what you will see is basically an attacking player flying across, trying to get to a ball that the defender is getting to. And they essentially launch themselves. Like they sometimes chuck themselves through the air. They leave the floor. They make sure they get their foot out in front of sort of where the ball is. They get kicked because they've flown from out of nowhere to a player who's focusing on the ball and about ready to kick the ball out, who doesn't even know where they are. They come barging in, I think, recklessly. They Both people get taken out, and the foul goes to the player who came flying in out of nowhere who had, by the way, didn't touch the ball. No control of the ball whatsoever. So I don't like those fouls. I think that they're growing. Um, I also don't understand why there's the need to award a penalty for that. Right, I, no way is that what you would consider a clear and obvious error, in my opinion. I, but again, all these opinions on what a clear and obvious error is, I just didn't think that that was really a penalty. I don't think it's good that we are rewarding attacking players for creating contact, sometimes in a dangerous way, going down and then being able to get a penalty for it. I just don't think that reward is fair. But let's actually go into the future of what U.S. women's national team looks like. They were so dominant multiple times in their history, right? They won the World Cup in back in 95. They won the Olympics uh, back in 96. So, they, you know, there was uh, really, really – or 91, I'm sorry. They won the, the World Cup, won the Olympics in 96, won the World Cup in 99. So very good 90s. But then it was a struggle. They didn't, they, they didn't get much done in the 2000s. They did win the Olympics, but the World Cup – eluded them. Germany won two, then Japan won in 2011, and that's when things started to change again. The United States goes and wins the World Cup in 2015, backs it up in 2019. So they haven't been like the only good team forever. There have been times that were a little bit leaner, and I think this may be the beginning of a little bit of a lean time because they have to rebuild. Look, it may be one of the I, – I do think that's the the reason, but I think it's a good thing too because every single time they've gone through a lean period, the women's football landscape has grown and evolved and gotten bigger. And and that, that I think, is, is a key factor here. Spain and the Netherlands are two teams that in 2015 no one thought about. No one talked about. No one – I remember everyone was saying France, look out for England, you know, Germany – Look out for the, the Scandinavian teams, obviously. They're, they've been around for years. But Holland and Spain sort of came out of nowhere and have an amazing class of players. And it's you can see how the fact that football is growing and the quality is growing everywhere means that now it's such a bigger challenge. There are probably 10 teams, 10 countries on the women's side who can now, every single time they step on the field against the U.S., give them a close match, which wasn't true before. It was probably only two or three. So this is a very good thing for the women's game. Look, it, it's also nice to see some of these stories happen. Canada hasn't beaten the United States since 2001, so 20 years, right? And Canada will now get to compete for a gold medal match, which has eluded them for such a long time. I'm not going to lie, predict right now, I think Sweden's going to win. They've looked the best team in this competition by quite a distance. Um. And I think it's just really hard to say how this is all going to pan out in time, but I don't think it's total doom and gloom for the future. Let's talk about, real quick, what went wrong here. Obviously, it's hard to say. I think a lot of the players struggle to know and understand it. It's such a strong squad that has won repeatedly. Why should they struggle this badly 
at this stage, right? All the reasons you can think of in terms of what you would think of as excuses, but that are actually valid small reasons, like there's no crowd, so it's harder to, you know, get up and, and amped and motivated in those moments where it's kind of stale. And for that as an argument, for instance, you have a reduced squad, the, you know, the you maybe have to travel from more stadiums and, you know, around more than other other teams, things like that. And all those little mini components, they make a difference, yes. I don't think any of the players or Vladko are going to trot those out as actual excuses. They're just going to say they weren't good enough, which they already have. But, you know, looking at Carly Lloyd just looking crushed at the end. Ah, man, sitting on the ball just really and, and having her hands in her, her head in her hands. For me, I think that looked like you're very well aware that your international career is done after this, this bronze medal game. Um, and that's a big moment because Carly Lloyd was a person who was the hero of the 2015 team. And then when, after 2019, there were people saying, well, now it's probably, her time's probably done now. And then she came back and roared back. She believes cup scored a bunch of goals and now is in the side for this Olympics. Maybe taking the spot away from a younger player who you really would have liked to see in action here. But this is the issue. I think that Vlatko, people may criticize him, but like I said before in a, in a previous episode, he inherited a team that that had already won, that, that was on the top of the world and had a batch of players who are older, very powerful in the team, and maybe at the point where you just want to start shifting them off. But you can't when they're scoring goals, when they're winning golden boots, when they're delivering for you every time you play them. You can't get rid of them yet. And I think this, like I've said already, is probably the best moment to change the team. And I don't think Vladko's scared of making changes because watching this tournament, he made a lot of substitutions uh, sort of early in the second half. He'd throw three players on to try and change the game. He changed starting lineups frequently to try and give other players an option. So he trusted in his bench, similar to what I said Burhalter and Mancini were doing. And honestly, it just... Ended up looking like sort of throwing darts randomly, hoping that they hit trip 20s and, and bullseyes because nothing really worked. But I, I do think that the formula for this team is right. The talent that's coming, that's that's waiting in the wings, is, is plentiful. And that over time, he will be able to get what he wants out of the team. The patterns of play were, were weird. The runs were not well-timed all over the field. I felt that a lot of the passes and crosses into the box were not to set someone up to really score. They were just to get it in there. Some of the little headers or stabs to try and get a ball on target, they were never going to go in. And this is the look of a team that's kind of running out of ideas, running out of confidence, maybe out of energy. And all of that sounds like it needs a refresh. Uh, I think this is the state of where this team is at. This failure also is going to bring out the narrative about the equal pay thing. Because look, on the same night that they cra- that the senior women's team with all of its major stars crashes out pretty limply in the Olympic Games, a men's C team wins the Gold Cup, right? And so, I mean, that that's just an added element that I'm sure a lot of people are going to talk about. Obviously, I don't think it really, I don't think it makes any sense, but to, to try and attack the women's team for this or hammer them for that. But the criticism's coming. I feel like Megan Rapinoe is going to get a lot, um, a little concerned for what she's going to have to deal with. But 
And hopefully Vladko doesn't get chucked under the bus either. I think that this is just a good learning experience for this program, for this team. And it was also interesting, on the equal pay thing, it was interesting seeing a statement from the men's side, the men's union. They said that uh, the, the soccer stance that U.S. soccer has taken towards the women has been corrosive and that the treatment is as if they're second-class citizens. And so this whole saga is going to continue, but the fact that men just finally weighed in, that helps a lot. In the meantime, what's the fallout going to be to this? Well, look, I'm going to tell you right now. The U.S. women are not finished as a powerhouse. If anyone thinks this is the end of the dominant era, you're wrong. And I'll tell you this, because Brazil go through dominant eras. Brazil go through lean times, and they go through, they go through fat times. And so do Germany, right? On the, this is on the men's side. And it's because they have such deeply well-created reserves of players. They've got the, the coaching, the, the talent. Everything gets to a point where you're always going to crank out good teams. The question is when you get a special generation. And look, I work in girls' soccer. I coach 13-, 14-year-old girls. Believe me, the talent level that they have now compared to what I saw even just 10 years ago for the average players, has massively improved. So you can only imagine that the top elite players are even better than the ones now. With the amount of players that we have in this country and how much women's soccer is being developed, funded, and pushed, which I've done some episodes about. Check out one called the uh, Women's Football Tidal Wave if you want to know a few more things about stories that are happening in the women's game that show the growth of it. But like I said... (laughs) I don't think that this this U.S. team as a program is going anywhere backwards. I just think the rest of the world has caught up, which is nothing but good. It's nothing but good to see to see this happen. So could you know could another generation of women come through and dominate, win back to back World Cup titles? I think absolutely. Uh, but is it ever going to be the, as easy as it was? No. And that's what we want. We want competition, right? The big question now is, can this team be rebuilt in time for Australia-New Zealand 2023 World Cup? And that comes down to Vlatko being able to get the selections that he wants and build the team that he feels is right and be able to get everyone going in the same direction where it doesn't feel as if the senior players just have their tickets punched, have their voice that they can say whatever they want, and, and, and they don't have to necessarily follow the lead of the coach in charge. It'll be really interesting to see. I'm, I'm excited to see who the young players are that can come through, names that we haven't seen or heard of that, that start to, to come in. And, you know, I said over a month ago that I was entirely unconvinced by this team and how they were going to come and deal with this moment at the Olympics. And and I said I didn't think they would win it this year. And it was all because when you look around the teams that do well, it's when everyone is pulling in the same direction. They're humble, they work hard, and there is a clear, clear pattern of play and direction of what they want to do. That's now going to change. And I think it's going it, to, it is an interesting crossroads for both the men and the women. Where will it go? That's the big question. This is Campfire Football. Hope you've enjoyed it. Have a great day.